You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 to 39, on this fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time. Upon leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and the first thing they did was to tell him about her. He went over to her and grasped her hand and helped her up, and the fever left her. She immediately began to wait on them. After sunset, as evening drew on, they brought him all who were ill and those possessed by demons. Before long the whole town was gathered outside the door. Those whom he cured, who were variously afflicted, were many, and so were the demons he expelled. But he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Rising early the next morning, he went off to a lonely place in the desert. There he was absorbed in prayer. Simon and his companions managed to track him down, and when they found him they told him, Everybody is looking for you. He said to them, Let us move on to the neighboring villages, so that I may proclaim the good news there also. That is what I have come to do. So he went into their synagogues preaching the good news and expelling demons throughout the whole of Galilee. When Pope John Paul II visited the synagogue in Rome a few years ago, it created a great stir. His reference to the Jews as our elder brothers was quoted right, left and centre, and the event was hailed as a historic breakthrough in Christian-Jewish relations. As indeed it was, but the seeds had been planted during the Second Vatican Council. In its document Nostra Aetate, the Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religions, it stated clearly, Even though the Jewish authorities and those who followed their lead pressed for the death of Christ, neither all Jews indiscriminately at that time, nor Jews today, can be charged with the crimes committed during his Passion. Some years later, the Guidelines on Religious Relations with the Jews referred to 2,000 years, too often marked by mutual ignorance and frequent confrontation, and declared, although Christianity sprang from Judaism, taking from it certain essential elements of its faith and divine worship, the gap dividing them was deepened more and more, to such an extent that Christian and Jew hardly knew each other. In a handbook on life in Bible times, we read that as Jews considered the followers of Jesus to be a party within Judaism, they were allowed to worship on the Sabbath alongside their fellows at the synagogues and temple. At first, the disciples had conflicting emotions about temple and synagogue worship. Eventually, though, the Jews and Christians antagonized each other so much that there was little choice but to worship separately. The conflict, of course, as the handbook adds, did not revolve around the format or the location of worship, but the nature of worship itself. And so we find the early Christians meeting in private houses to celebrate the Eucharist. And little by little, the synagogue disappears from Christian worship. St. Paul certainly taught in synagogues, though he didn't always have a good reception. And Jesus himself, when he went to Nazareth, we read, went to the synagogue as his custom was on the Sabbath day. But his listeners didn't like it when he quoted the miracles God had worked for pagans. They wanted to throw him over a cliff. 
Nevertheless, throughout his ministry in Galilee, Jesus taught in the synagogues. After calling Peter and the other three fishermen, we read, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. The synagogue is present at the beginning and ending of today's Gospel. But what was the synagogue? What is a synagogue? One dictionary says, firstly, a Jewish congregation. Secondly, the house of worship and communal centre of a Jewish congregation. Another dictionary has a building where a Jewish assembly or congregation meets for religious observance and instruction, and secondly, such an assembly or congregation. The word in Greek means meeting or assembly, which is interesting because today in our liturgy the word assembly is used often in reference to the celebration of the Eucharist, as we see in this extract from the Council Decree on the Liturgy. Whenever the community gathers to celebrate the Eucharist, it announces the death and resurrection of the Lord in the hope of his glorious return. The supreme manifestation of this is the Sunday Assembly. Little by little, it seems, we are linking up with our roots. The Church cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament by way of that people with whom God in his inexpressible mercy established the ancient covenant. Once again, Nostra Aetate. And remembering what St. Paul wrote to the Romans, it goes on. Nor can she forget that she draws nourishment from that good olive tree onto which the wild olive branches of the Gentiles have been grafted. And again, Paul, this time to the Ephesians. The Church believes that Christ, who is our peace, has through his cross reconciled Jews and Gentiles and made them one in himself. The synagogue as an institution seems to have originated at the time of the Babylonian captivity. The temple in Jerusalem was the only place where the Jews could offer sacrifice. During their exile, deprived of their temple and sacrificial worship, the people assembled regularly to read the scriptures and discuss their meaning. Jewish tradition has it that in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, 5th century BC, a body of 120 men met to remodel the religious life of the Jews after the return from exile and to establish the text and canon of the Hebrew scriptures. This meeting was known as the Great Synagogue. It was then that the Mosaic Law was proclaimed as the law of the state for the Jewish community. It's sometimes called the Charter of Judaism. And so the local synagogue must have been born, a place where the people met to pray, sing, and study the Torah, or precept, the Hebrew word for the Pentateuch, which contained the Mosaic Law, or the revealed will of God as contained in the Scriptures. The chief function of the synagogue was to foster understanding and proper observance of the Jewish law. In effect, it became the seed of a spiritual government which ordered and disciplined the lives of the people. Thus the handbook has it. And in New Testament times, a speech of the Apostle James, quoted in Acts, ends with these words. For Moses has always had his preachers in every town and is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath. Since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Jews have had no other form of public worship to this day than the synagogue. It has its special symbol still, the ark in which the scrolls of the law are kept, the ever-burning lamp 
and the reading desk, usually in the middle of the building. Italian novelist Giorgio Bassani writes vividly of synagogue worship in the 1930s, as seen from a boy's point of view. Our pew was far down near the semicircular enclosure, bordered all round by a marble railing, in the centre of which stood the teva, or lectern, of the celebrant. And we had an excellent view of the monumental wardrobe in black carved wood, in which the scrolls of the law, the so-called sefarim, were kept. As soon as we arrived, Alberto hastened to wrap himself in the great taled, the white woolen stole with black stripes, which had once belonged to his grandfather Moses. Professor Herman beckoned me to look at the copper engravings, illustrating an ancient Bible, which he took out of the drawer, especially for me. When the joyful procession of the seraphim passed along the pews, the scrolls wrapped in the rich mantles of embroidered silk, the silver crowns and the little bells tinkling, the doctor and Mr. Herrera, the engineer, leaned out impetuously to kiss as many folds of the mantles as they could, with an almost indecent greed. What matter if Professor Herman, imitated by his son, limited himself to covering his eyes with a corner of his taled and murmuring a prayer? Will you do me the kindness of keeping still, hissed my father? You can't even behave properly in the temple. But I wasn't listening, and was soon turning my back again on Dr. Levi, intoning away, forgetful of every prohibition. If my father wanted to have me in his power for a few minutes, physical power, that is, only physical, all he had to do was to wait for the solemn blessing, when all the children would be gathered under the paternal taletod, as under so many tents. And now at last, the verger, Capasotto, was going round with his pole, lighting one by one the thirty silver and gilded bronze candelabra of the synagogue. And then, after an anxious time of waiting, the voice of Dr. Levi, usually so insipid, suddenly took on the prophetic tone suited to the supreme final moment of the Beraha. What the synagogue was like in our Lord's time, we can but guess from the ruins of the 4th century Capernaum synagogue, said to have been built on the site of the one where Jesus taught. And nearby, a number of dwellings from the first century after Christ have been excavated, including the so-called House of Peter. In today's guidebook, we can read. Although there is nothing in the early house to identify its owner, its development into a fully recognized church indicates a strong tradition connecting it with Peter and with the activities of Jesus in Capernaum. And of these activities, our gospel is full, especially that of healing. From the synagogue, Jesus goes straight to Peter's house, and there his first action is to heal his disciple's mother-in-law. It's what we might call a quiet miracle. There's no fuss, no words are reported, only the gentle, immediate act of Jesus. He went over to her and grasped her hand and helped her up, and the fever left her. And she, without more ado, wastes no time on words of thanks, or at least they're not reported, but immediately began to wait on them. 
The evangelists don't tell us what was wrong with Peter's mother-in-law, only that she had a fever. Luca, however, calls it a high fever, and at that time this was a precise medical term, and Luke, being a doctor, would have naturally used it. It was used also by Galen, the great Greek physician. For the people of the lakeside towns, attacks of fever were quite common and could often have been of malarial origin. But whatever it was, Peter and his brother were obviously worried enough to ask our Lord to intervene, asking him to do something for her. Leaning over her, writes Luke, he rebuked the fever and it left her. The word rebuke seems to be used often by the Gospels, though usually when referring to casting out of devils which is not the case here. But only a little while before, in the synagogue, Jesus had cured the demoniac. And soon the quiet family scene here recounted was to be interrupted by a concourse of people clamouring for him at the door. The hubbub didn't start till after sunset, when the Sabbath was over, for the Sabbath was a day of rest, and not even cures were supposed to be worked on such a day. Our Lord himself was accused on more than one occasion of violating that very rule. For example, after he cured the man born blind. It had been a Sabbath day when Jesus made the paste and opened the man's eyes. So when the Pharisees asked him how he had come to see, he said, He put a paste on my eyes and I washed and I can see. Then some of the Pharisees said, This man cannot be from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But as Jesus told them on another occasion, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he added, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All of this would have meant nothing to those suffering from diseases or tormented by devils. They had simply heard of the man possessed of an unclean spirit who had just been healed by this new rabbi. It had even called him the Holy One of God. And so they came, crowding at Peter's door, full of joyful hope. Somehow the line in our gospel, before long the whole town was gathered outside the door, reminded me of Bernadette, when the crowds pressed against the door of her house until it was opened, and they streamed upwards, wanting her to touch them, to bless rosaries, cutting pieces off her clothing, convinced she had miraculous powers, however much she protested otherwise. Jesus well knew what his powers were, and many were the ills he cured, and many the demons he dispatched. But on that occasion, before it was light, he was up and away to a lonely place in the desert, to pray, to be with his father, to get in touch with home, to recharge his batteries, as we would say today. None of these things can come anywhere near what the Son of God must have wanted when he left the house so early, before the other sun was up. He had cured the sick and expelled demons. Did he feel, as he did that day when the woman with an issue of blood touched his garment, did he feel that power had gone out of him? Surely he did. As for the demons, he had given power to the apostles to cast them out. But there was that occasion when they were unable to do so, when they were unsuccessful, and he said, this kind is only cast out by prayer and fasting. And so to the desert. And prayer, as T.S. Eliot put it. Prayer, 
is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, of the sound, of the voice praying. And the prayer of God, of the Son of God to the Father, could the Word have had need of words? <laughs> 